glad you said that. <laughs> Brian's talking to me. Oh, my We're God. Back. For show number, what, 21, 22? Oh, 21, okay. 21, 21. Good, good. This is, in case you don't know, this is Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Lynn Elias, MovieSharkDeBlore.com. And my cinematic cohort, Greg Srizavazdi, DeepestDream.com. Yes, yeah. And this yeah. another jam-packed show today. Of course, it's a very jam-packed studio today, too. You know, right. Lydia and Jordan are both here today. We're, we're playing with technical fun um, for for the look of the show. There's as, like as three move. cameras. Four. Four. Oh, re- oh, yeah, that one. Oh, what? That's a new one, right? That's yes. New... That's I'm now nervous. Yes, yeah. we, ha- we have four cameras okay, cool. now. Yeah. So, you know, all, every faux pas that we do will be captured. Yeah, my cameras are just hidden. So. Oh well, so we, <laughs> just, have, we have. I just no. Seven. That's that's another show though. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So, but yeah. a jam-packed show, mm-hmm. an exciting show. We've got uh, some experienced filmmakers, but first-time directors calling in today. Okay. Sam Friedlander uh, has a, this hilarious new film coming out called Larry Gay, Male Renegade, Flight Attendant, that comes out this Friday. Okay. I haven't laughed that hard in a long time yeah. sam is going to be joining us at eleven ten. okay at eleven thirty, um very exciting we have a young director marcus mazel he has a film that is currently in dances with films the premiere of which is today at one o'clock so we are going to get to talk to him and any nervous nelly butterflies before his premiere at 11.30. So the Dances with Films Festival, what is that specifically? Dances with Films Film Festival is now in its 18th year, and it truly is indie, indie, indie. Okay. Um, it is the embodiment of indie films. Uh, you don't have all the celebrity premieres. Of course, you do have films that have a lot of notable names right. in them. Yeah. Uh, one film that we're going to be talking about next week, when you aren't here... Oh, is a yeah. short Shevenge directed by Amber Benson, who w- comes out of the world of Joss Whedon. Right. She was on Buffy the right. Vampire Slayer for years. Her cast is comprised of uh, some of the members are Eugene Bird, who plays one of the Squinterns, Dr. Clark Addison on Bones, okay. and the wonderful Emmy Ryland, who the soap opera world will know as Lulu Spencer Falconary on General Hospital. Okay. Yeah. So Molly Quinn. Uh, of Castle. She is in a film called Welcome to Happiness that is just brilliant and why this film doesn't have a distribution deal yet, I don't know. Um. But I'm going to be talking to uh, the cast and the directors of that film this coming Thursday. Wait, so they have a combination of features and shorts. Features, shorts, documentaries. Okay. And luckily with a couple like with Amber's film she her short Shevenge, that actually is also going to play in LA Film Festival this year too. Oh nice. Yeah. So, hoping that uh, LAFF will have some notable little people on that red carpet. And they all screen at the Chinese? It's all the Chi- Dances with Films is now held at, and it has been for the past few years, at the Man's Chinese okay. Complex in Hollywood, in the upstairs Man 6. Um, it runs for, what is it? I think this is a 10-day festival. Okay. It started on Thursday night, uh, runs all through this week, and it is jam-packed. A nice thing they have, they also have an alumni section, so a lot of the alums that have films that have gone on uh, to DVD and all, and they'll, you can come buy them, they'll autograph them for you. <sighs> nice. So it, it's a really nice little setup, and the fact it's there in the Chinese complex in Hollywood, as you know, we love that for TCM. Right, yeah. So um, it, it is, it's a great little festival, and I, quite honestly, based on the films I'm seeing so far, from Dances with Films and the scattered links for films I'm I'm screening for LA Film Festival. Right. Dances with Films films are better than Whoa. what LAFF is going to be showing. Okay. Okay. So there is no rhyme or reason. It just is, right? Just the, what you've seen so far. What I've seen okay. so far, um, which is by no means anywhere near, you know, the numbers I normally, you know, see, especially with LAFF. Because they yeah. changed things up this year, uh, so that it's a little harder for pr- even press to screen films before the festival, which I think is a stupid move because it makes it very difficult to really get the word out there about why people should come see those films. Speaking of films, my favorite films are film noirs, and while we have time, <laughs> just for the people who will check out this video, film noir 
the encyclopedia. This is an amazing, and I'm going to screw up the whole table display here so that Lydia and Jordan can both hate me. This is an amazing, amazing book put together by Lane Silver, Elizabeth Ward, James Orsini, and Robert uh, Porfirio. It goes through noir, what defines noir, defines the different kinds of noir, mm -hmm. examples of film. And I brought it today because right. today kicks off something very special with TCM. This is now. We are in the summer of darkness. <laughs> July is devoted to film noir. Okay. So, so TCM is going to do some kind of special thing, screening? or for the as far as Well, the month of July oh. on TCM is celebrating film noir films oh, that's starting amazing. today. Uh, now, tomorrow night, I'm actually going to a special TCM event in that we're not allowed to disclose where it is. Yeah. Uh, that kicks off the Summer of Darkness programming. Uh, Eddie uh, Muller will be there and Dennis Lehane, oh. one of the greatest crime thriller yeah. novelists around. Gone Baby Gone, right? Did that. Yep. And he, Mystic River. Yep. Oh, some of the finest. And he, and he penned the script of one of my favorite films last year. The drop. drop. Yeah, the, the drop. drop. The drop. Yeah. So. So. And oh my gosh. He will. And Dennis will be speaking. Eddie Muller will be speaking, and will be screening the 1950 Norm Foster film "Woman on the Run," starring Anne Sheridan. Oh, nice. Yeah. You know, and, and one of the sad things about "Woman on the Run," it is such a great noir that should have been preserved, should have been taken better care of, but the it fell out of copyright, so it fell into the public domain. So over the years, people have seen. You know, colorized or exploited versions, cut up versions on VHS, on beta. Right. Um, yeah. So, so to, to know that it's now in the, in the hands of TCM, we're going to be seeing a clean, beautiful copy in its original design. I had no idea they did a summer of July thing with film noir. June. So, June. Oh, June. Oh, June. We're only in June. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was so, skipping ahead there. Okay. So that's great. So, yeah. you know. I should. Uh, yes. You should definitely check it out. Yeah. Yeah. Summer of Darkness. Summer of Darkness. Okay. TCM. Right. That is there. That is today launches that. So I will fill you in in the future how okay. tomorrow's e tomorrow's event is. Okay, cool. But you have something to talk about today. Yeah, just very quickly, I'm doing a giveaway on my site deepestream.com for the taking of Tiger Mountain, and it's directed by this guy. I can't pronounce his first name. T S U I Hark. I don't know if you can pr pronounce that. I, I'm thinking. Choi Hark. Probably Sue. Sue, Sue Hark. Sue, Sue yeah, Hark. Sue. Anyways, I'm just going to call him Mr. Hark. Director Hark. Director Hark. And The Taking of Tiger Mountain. It's um, an action epic, 143 minutes, set in 1946 China, post-World War II. And it's about the conflict between the PLA, People's mm -hmm. Liberation Army, and against, they're trying to overtake a bandit stronghold in this fortified section called Tiger Mountain Ooh. and it's really it's really cool because it's director uh, Hark he basically uses modern technology and frames it as a kind of a fantastical action epic with its share of drama as well so it's a really beautiful film I just watched it this morning that's why I look a little bit tired oh. so um, but the the special features are great you have interviews with director Hark and he talks about his process and this movie has actually been in his head since 1988 and he was able to shoot it last year and it really shows and it's a beautifully mounted project and and yeah so i'm giving away three blu-rays on my on my site and yeah. we all know how much you all like free stuff free stuff very quick uh trivia on this director harky directed two van damme films from the mid 90s i, I believe it's knockoff and double team so and he's also directed the Once Upon a Time in China films starring Jet Li, which okay. made Jet Li a star. So he, the the director he def, definitely has an entree with a wide a worldwide audience, and the film itself is really well done from Monaco, USA. So, and he knows action. And he knows action. So yeah, that's it. So yeah. hey, well, and now we both had a chance to see a really fun movie that I described as. Fun, frothy, and fast. But not lethal. But not lethal. Well, it's charmingly lethal. Charmingly lethal? Okay. Yeah. You know, yeah. barely lethal. Haley Steinfeld, Dove Cameron, Sophie Turner. Um, Jessica Alba, Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, that guy. You know, him. Just a lot of stars in this movie. And directed by a Morristown, New Jersey native. Oh. Uh, you know, out in my East Coast neck of okay. the woods. Okay. Kyle Newman. 
And this is, I have to say, this is one, it's a fun film. It keeps going. It's got, you know, Haley Seinfeld is a, you know, a little super spy. Yeah, she's a prodigy agent. Yes. And, you know, we have all of the, you know, the tropes and cliches that you would expect with high school and spy world melded together. She's a spy who just, an agent who just wants to actually be a normal teenager. Right. Yeah. And, I mean, it is. It's a lot of fun. And... Yeah, we both had our one-on-ones with Kyle Newman. With Kyle Newman. Newman. Yeah. And Kyle had some interesting things to say that, and we have a clip once Brian is, Brian is, is, he's on the phone right now with Sam, but before we take Sam, we want to hear this clip with Kyle Newman uh, talking about directing and preparation for Barely Lethal. The biggest thing is before you even get to set, you have to figure it out the movie. Before you're even working with the actors, before you're even in the editing room. All of those things, you have to have a very open mind to it because actors come in with different styles. When you're in the editing room, it may not have come out exactly like your scripts. You have to be open to changing it. You have to be open to discovering something new and not being attached to anything. But it all comes down to in the pre-production and the planning. It's saying, what do I want this movie to be? Having a vision for the end goal and making sure everything comes through that to stay on tone, to stay on target. If something great pops up, someone comes in with a great idea or there's some limitation, forces you to discover a new way of looking at it and you find a way to heighten it or improve it, that's great. But it's always knowing what your end goal is and planning towards it. So before you even get actors on the set, you figure the movie out. You know what your goal is. You know what you're trying to do. If you get to set and you're trying to figure it out, then the battle's already lost. And those are extremely wise words about filmmaking. And we'll have to get our friend David Spalter to weigh in on that one day. Okay, definitely. But yeah. right now, joining us is the wonderful Sam Friedlander, who has a movie coming out that had me laughing so hard I was crying. Are you there, Sam? Oh, yes. Hi. Hi, Sam. You are with How us. Are you? I am fine. This is Debbie and my little cinematic cohort. Greg is here, too. Hello. This is so. I mean, I am so thrilled that you could call in today, Sam, because this this movie is just it is a laugh a minute. Well, it's good to hear that. It's always uh, it's always the goal in big comedy. <laughs> <laughs> ha- I know that Mike Sikowitz, who has one of the most impressive screenwriting resumes in television and film, and has this great knack for comedy. Uh, you know, melding friends with. The hilarity of the of the Wild Thornberry cartoons, rules of engagement, even Duckman, and puts this whole thing together with Larry Gay, male renegade flight attendant, and now takes us into the skies. Um, how did this come into your very capable hands here, Sam? So it actually came through my friend uh, Mark Feuerstein, who um, is who plays the title character of Larry Gay. Um, and uh, Mark and I, Mark was in my thesis film when I was in film school, um, and we've stayed friends and collaborators since then. And uh, him and Mike Sykowitz are also friends, and I've worked on one thing with them a while back. We made a web series that Mike wrote, and um, Mike had given his script uh, to Mark, and Mark decided, you know, that this was the character he wanted to play and uh, wanted to raise the money and try to make the movie, and he got in touch with me. And I read it, I laughed a lot, and I said, wow, they don't, you know, they don't really make movies like this anymore. And uh, I said, let's try to do it then. Um, so that was how it came to me. It kind of landed in my lap, very fortunately, and it was something that I was very into. Now, how do you go about directing, creating, designing, and constructing a film like Larry Gay, Male Renegade, Flight Attendant, you know, so the, because the commu- the comic timing and beats are so key, and hand in hand with that are the actors that you have to execute those beats. Yeah, I mean, I think that that sort of is the key. With for us was was casting. You know, I think when you have a script that's funny and you get a great cast, it takes so much of the pressure off. You know, of having to find that stuff on set, and, and when when you have as little time as we had, because you know we we did this on a low budget, so to be able to try to you know it would have been great to have you know a day per scene and be able to improv and come up with new stuff, and you know I, I, that's something I'd love to do. But on this one, we knew we had to get this done really fast, really efficiently, and so you know putting together an amazing cast makes that such such an easier task. Um, and so you know it started with. 
getting in touch with some key actors that we, you know, that through through friends and connections, and Mark knows a lot of people. Um, and then it sort of, you know, started to come together after that. Um, and then it was about, you know, finding tone references of, of movies that we liked that we wanted to try to hit on. You know, when it first came to me, it was sort of like Airplane Meets Anchorman, and that seemed like a great, you know, kind of target to hit. And so then I was watching a lot of movies in that, you know, in that space, reminding myself of those movies that I watched when I was growing up, you know, that they just, it seems like they kind of stopped making like the Hot Shots movies mm-hmm. or the Naked Gun or, you know, whatever it, whatever it is. That, that sort of genre sort of paused in the 90s and hasn't really come back. Do you have, an, uh, do you have a theory on why this genre hasn't come back since the 90s? Because there, it's such an excellent genre with great writers and directors at the helm. Why do you think I it, don't. You know, we, we sat around in a couple of meetings, you know, we went uh, with Michael Weiss, who's our producer, and Ted Krober, and, and Mark and I, we, we, you know, we'd be waiting for our cast to come in and meet, and we would kind of fall back on the topic of, why don't they make movies like this anymore? And we couldn't really figure it out. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know if it was that at some point they became passe, and then it moved down to other stuff, and it hasn't come back around. I actually just watched... Um, well, this weekend, someone recommended I watch um, They Came Together which, uh, with Paul Rudd, um, which I don't know if you've seen that movie, but it does feel like slightly veering back into that territory, which was kind of cool. It felt like kind of a bizarre cousin to our movie or something. Um, you know, it had a little bit of slapstick element in it. And, and uh, you know, I mean, I think audiences now aren't used to that stuff, so it takes a little little adjustment when you see that stuff. They're really overt slapsticky. Now, how how exciting is it for you, you know, when the films like Airplane, films like Hotshot, you know, this is, the, you grew up on this, you love these, you watch them, and then you bring in God, you bring in lovely little cameos from somebody like Julie Haggerty, you get Henry Winkler in here, then you get Molly Shannon, you get Stanley Tucci, I mean, it's, this is, you have to feel like a kid on Christmas morning. Yeah, it really was. I mean, for me, you know, first first feature, so to come in on set and on any given day, you know, because a lot of those, you know, a lot of those parts would just shoot for one or two days, so there was, and we had a crazy schedule, so it'd be like coming in and looking at the week ahead, and it was like, on each successive day, it was working with another person that was somebody that I either grew up watching and loving, or someone that, you know, I still watch, and, you know, just all these people, and so it took a little bit of, uh, you know, sort of hiding that Christmas morning face so that I didn't, you know, showing up and working with Jason Alexander one day and not being so overwhelmed with the fact that I'm on set with this guy that I could actually, you know, oh, there's no big deal, you know, hey, how's it going? Let's work on the scene. Um, so there was sort of a, and for me, I, you know, I had to push that down a little bit because it was so exciting. And, uh, you know, the Julie Haggerty cameo was amazing. Um, that, that was something that I really wanted to get. It actually wasn't in the initial script, and we, I had talked about getting a couple of, you know, great cameos in a movie like this, and that was one that we were able to get, which we were so excited about. Um, it sort of was, you know, tipping our hat and acknowledging that, you know, we were inspired by Airplane, but also felt like it lended a little credibility of, you know, we've acknowledged it, and now let's move on and, and do our own movie here. Mm-hmm. So what made this the right film for you to jump into as a first-time feature director? What was that? What made this film the right one? for you to jump into for your first feature? Huh, that's a, you know, that's a tough question. I think one thing that made it the right film was, was the people involved and having Mark, um, you know, who's somebody I've worked with a ton, I'm incredibly comfortable with, um, and we just have a great time working together. So having Mark, you know, as an intimate part, he was a producer, um, and and I was a, as well. So to, to have, you know, to have him... There and you know that initial thing off the table of like how is it going to be working with the lead actor slash producer? I know how it's going to be. It's going to be great. So for me, that was a huge you know in the plus category. And then at a certain point, it just became you know we knew he had this window of time when he was on hiatus from shooting Royal Pains, mm-hmm. and so it was hey we've got it you know we've got two months here to make the movie, and we kind of backtracked our schedules and said okay well we need you know, to pre-produce here, therefore we need our money by this date, and that date was about two months away, and so it was like, all right, well, we either have two months to try to, you know, get this movie going, or, it, you know, maybe it won't happen. So it was a timing thing, which it ended up working out, and we got, our, I think we got our last piece of financing, you know, the day before the uh, the deadline, and, and 
we got to make the movie. So, it, you know, it felt like a long time, you know, because I think from the, <laughs> the moment that the script came to me to now is, you know, a couple of years. But, uh, you know, it feels like a long time. But I think in, in, in the perspective of other independent film experiences that I've heard, it actually was relatively expedient. Now, with all the years and all the time you've already been in the industry, I mean, production manager on Royal Pains, um, you worked on Broken Pipe Dreams. How did you go about putting together your crew? I know you brought in Alicia Christian as your cinematographer, who she had actually worked before with Mark when she was DP on a Joss Whedon-written uh, film, In Your Eyes. And she also did Save the Date um, that I saw with Mark Webber and Lizzie Kaplan. What led you to, to bring in Alicia and then, you know, the rest of the team to create this little world? Um, so Alicia is actually Elijah. It's a guy, and I didn't realize that until later on, too. So um, he, he has a unique name spelling. Um, and, and Elijah was somebody that actually I had never worked with before. Um, like you said, he had worked with Michael Rose and, and Mark and a couple of things. And um, so he was somebody that came to me through the producers, through Michael Rose and through um, and through his experiences. And he said, you know, this guy is great. He's going to be able to make this movie look like a you know like a thirty million dollar movie on the on the much smaller budget that we have. Um, and so it was sort of uh, an arranged marriage, but it worked. It worked well. Um, he did an, an amazing job shooting the film. Um, but you know, it was one of those things where. When you have a, because I had we had another DP that I had worked with a bunch that was initially set to do it, but then due to scheduling conflicts, he fell out. Um, so it is one of those things that when you come on set with a with a new crew, it, there's certainly a curve of like how you work together. Um, and so going into the insane production schedule we were on, um, with you know that new relationship, certainly was a challenge. You know to try to figure out how each other works and how is this going to be and what's the collaboration going to be like and hitting the ground at 100 miles an hour. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, that's, that was part of, the, uh, part of the challenge of the movie in the beginning. Um, but, uh, you know, it ended up working out well. Um, and our other crew is sort of a, a mix between people that I had worked with before and people that um, uh, we had hired and we had sort of, Michael had worked with before and Todd had worked with before. And so it sort of became a a big group of people and everybody sort of knew somebody. There's a couple of people that no one had worked with before who ended up being great. Uh, our production designer, Tom Masowski, um, just somebody that we had interviewed with and he, you know, he was inspired by uh, doing a movie like this. So, um, it was kind of a, a crew that is sort of a hodgepodge. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I think a lot of times you hear directors say, you know, Oh, everybody on this film is somebody I've worked with before. Um, and that's not the case on this film. Although, uh, you know, that's something I would love to do, and maybe on my next film I will bring on the same crew. You know, it's mm-hmm. sort of a, I think there's there's a, a comfort to that that's great when you're when you're on a tight schedule. Now I have to ask you about the your muse, the original music, um, Michael Cohen. I became aware of Michael with this incredible work he did on this little indie love and teleportation uh, from a little indie filmmaker Troy McGatlin. Michael is, he's a great composer. He's got a great ear. He can really capture emotional beats, but he's still, a lot of people have not heard of him. How did you, because music is such a key element in every film. How did Michael, how did you find Michael? And what were your thoughts on what you wanted in terms of a musical sensibility? Hello? Yeah, I'm here, Sam. Oh, sorry, you cut off. What were your thoughts on what? Uh, talking about uh, your composer, Michael Cohen, who did your music. I had first. Yeah, I didn't hear just the very last part. So, what were my thoughts on something? On Michael Cohen, your composer. How... Oh, yeah, yeah. So, Michael, Michael is fantastic. I agree with you. I'm not sure why he's not, you know, a go-to guy. He's um, he's somebody that actually went to USC around the time I was there. Um, a couple of the student films I worked on, uh, he composed. So, I, you know, he's somebody that I. Uh, knew of, and when we started to do this movie, um, there's a musical number at the, uh, that's now at the end, which is originally not at the end, it was originally in the beginning, um, but there's a big musical number, and so Michael Roif, our producer, had worked with Michael Cohen back when they were at Harvard doing um, some musical production there, plus I knew Michael, and so very early on during pre-production, we said, well, this is, this is going to shoot on, musical shot on days one and two, so 
we've got to write a song, pre-record a song, and then get that song to a choreographer to start working on the dancer. So the musical ended up being kind of the first big thing we had to tackle when we started okay. pre-production. <clears throat> so we, we got in touch with Michael. He wrote us this great musical, um, and we, we, you know, we recorded it. We went out, we shot the musical, and then towards the end of shooting, we were, you know, looking at editors and and composers, and, I, and we kind of it was sort of a thing of, well, Michael hit the musical out of the park. Why don't we give him a crack at the, you know, composing the whole film? Mm-hmm. And uh, he did a pass, and it was amazing, and that was it. So. Yeah, it was it was a great collaboration. Michael's fantastic composer. Yeah, I mean, I I was so surprised when I first heard him, uh, his score for Love and Teleportation, and then when I saw he scored yours and that musical number, I was just so thrilled because his work really is exemplary, and he really knows how to deliver the goods. Yeah, and he's super versatile. Like he can jump from styles so easily, um, you know, which is amazing to me. Um, you know, on jumping from styles, are, are there lessons you've learned from your years of television work that you can actually, that translates into feature filmmaking as far as efficiency and, and you know, working a project, you know, right on, on onto budget? What, what kind of lessons did you learn from transitioning from one medium to the other? Well, I mean, I think the, the inspiring thing about working in television is always the, the speed at which it happens and just get it happens. You know, it's not... There's very little, you know, stopping and waiting. It's more just we're shooting episode two starting on Wednesday, and then that finishes the following Friday. We start episode three on, you know, and they don't miss dates and they don't push. They just, you know, I mean, it happens when there's crazy surgery, but for the most part, they're on a schedule and you shoot, you know, 13, 15, whatever episodes, and there's no days off, and you just go through. And it, and I think there's a there's just a lesson in, in like making it happen and it's when you go when you work trying to get feature projects made it's always waiting and waiting and waiting and you know and, and then there's a lot of pushing and, and I think there's a you know for me the mentality of just like going and making it happen um, with this movie sort of that was generally how we applied it like we're going to start shooting this during the hiatus we're going to start on this day and working backwards and uh, uh, I, I kind of want to internalize that because I feel like that it's so crucial to getting anything made is just sort of acting like it's a foregone conclusion that it's going to happen. Um, and, you know, the speed on set, certainly, with with, uh, with television, they work a lot faster. Um, they stick to the script. And like I was saying, on this one, we didn't have a ton of time for improvisation. Um, you know, there's a few scenes where we did that, but mostly on days when we had a, a lighter schedule. But on a lot of the days, it was, you know, we've got to get enough coverage to cut the scene together, and we've got three hours in this location. How are we going to do it? Um, and so having been on a lot of TV sets and just, you know, sort of efficiency and when, when all, you know, when stuff's going wrong, knowing the bare coverage you can get to get the scene cut together. Um, and especially, you know, in a comedy, you don't need quite, you know, as extensive of coverage in terms of, of shots. Uh, a lot of times you can, you know, you can get by with a little bit less, which is nice. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was super helpful to have the, you know, the experience of working on a TV show. So i got to ask you, Sam, now having made it through your first feature film it's going out there you got a distribution deal which is a miracle in and of itself in the today what have you learned about yourself in throughout this process um i think the thing i learned uh, what i remember most learning uh from production was sort of and i've heard other directors say this and, and i do find it to be very true it's sort of like a, you know you got to trust your gut instinct and on the days when I, you know, hesitated and didn't, um, you know, it's when things get out of hand. And, you know, wh- whatever it is, sometimes you're going to be wrong, but you just kind of got to go with it. Because as soon as you show indecision or, or second-guessing yourself, it does affect the sort of attitudes of everybody else. And it becomes a bit of a, you know, snowball effect in terms of efficiency on set and getting the best work out of everybody. Um, and so I think, you know... That's one thing, and, and part of the thing about directing, you know, is you, a lot of times when you're starting out, it's like few and far between, so you'll direct, and then six months or a year will go by, you know, or more before the next time you're on set again, and so it, it does become a thing of, like, you get a little rusty, and it takes a few days to find your, your rhythm again, um, and I think, you know, the thing that, like, you know, directors that 
like Woody Allen, who know they're going to make a movie every year. There's like a very, there's something so appealing about being able to just go from one to the next and just keep those, you know, those senses sharp, the muscles, the sort of directing muscles tone, mm -hmm. and 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 like there's a confidence that comes with that that I hope to one day have a little piece of. Well, you're certainly off to a really good start, Sam. I can't thank you enough for calling in today. I, as I said, I laughed from beginning to end. I had tears streaming down my face with Larry Gay, renegade male flight attendant. And I can't wait to see what you do next. Well, thank you for having me, and uh, I'm very glad you enjoyed the movie. And uh, I hope to talk to you again on my next film. You darn well better. I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thanks, Sam. Bye-bye. All right. Talk to you later. And that was Sam Friedlander, director of Larry Gay, male renegade flight attendant. Which you, you what is a male renegade flight attendant? I'm sure it's explained in how renegade that... He's ve because Larry Gay is very renegade. He is the, He is the okay. best of the best. Okay. The man won the Golden Coffee Pot Award six years in a row for being the best flight attendant out there. Okay. And he can, if you need it, <laughs> he can do it. You need a rain bonnet, he'll get you a rain bonnet. You have a catastrophe with no selection of food on the plane. He will. He knows how to make the passengers pick the only thing you have. And Mark's a great comedic lead. So. Mark is incredible. Okay, cool. And uh, as a matter of fact, Shane is still trying to, to because of Mark's shooting schedule, we right. couldn't get him today. But Shane is still working on getting me uh, an exclusive with Mark. Because oh, that's great. He yeah. is brilliant in this film. Absolutely brilliant. And... Shall we jump right into our next little indie filmmaker sure, here? Yeah. Marcus Mazel. Hi, how are you? Hi. Welcome Thank to... Thank you for having me. Oh, my God. Welcome to Behind the Lens. This you... is exciting. Gre Greg Hi. is sitting here with me. Um, I'm sure Jonah told you what I thought of your film. He did, and I appreciate it very much. This is... This is bare bones, ex exaggerated skewering of the business that is so authentic and, and <laughs> true that the comedy is is inherent just in what you're putting out on screen. What Great. what made you think of this? For all of the listeners out there, you know, where does this? What is this story in a nutshell? And where does it come from? Uh, it, it comes from experiences, really, not just my own, mostly other people's experiences, um, mostly actors just talking about, kind of like griping about, you know, uh, going to talk to an agent, and the agent's like, you know what, yeah, uh, we would help you, but you don't have any market value. You know, it's the kind of thing where, <clears throat> you know, it starts bothering you so much, it's like, you know what, we're going to get some justice here, we're going to write a story, and we're going to make a movie about it, and we're going to call it all out, you know, so... Uh, Jesse, the lead, he plays this bald actor who, who thinks that he's not getting parts because he's a bald man, but he gets a wig, puts the wig on his head. Um, <clears throat> he didn't actually do that in real life, but he did, you know, he did think that he was kind of being discriminated against slightly for being a bald, a young bald white guy, uh, which sounds ridiculous, but it does limit your chances of, you know, a lot of different parts. So mm -hmm. I took that and ran with it, just started writing and and uh, <clears throat> we actually shot a little five-minute web series to kind of gauge just how you know how it would go and how people would respond to it. And it was nice. I mean, you know, for the twelve dollars that we spent on it, <laughs> making it, we got a decent response. So that was when I said, "Let's make a second one." Got a couple more dollars, and uh, I couldn't get it out of my head. So I just I had to turn it into a feature, and we found, you know, we actually shot this uh, feature. I know I'm not supposed to tell the budget, but I kind of want to. Can I? No, do uh, no, no, no. Do I, not. I, I, no. Oh, ne really? No. <laughs> do <laughs> not. Oh, okay. The standard answer right. that you should always give about budgeting is more than a dollar. Yeah. You know, but don't ever, because see, then it ruins your distribution chances on getting a really good payday. If people know how right. much it costs, no, no. This some of the oh. best advice I can give any any young filmmakers out there: do not tell people your budget. Mm. End well, the story. tricky thing is, it's the selling point. It's not a selling point, but for me, I, I was hoping that it would be. But I, I know everybody's making micro-budget movies, and it's not a new story. But we're very proud of what we made it for. But I understand what you're saying. It's not, it's not, a, good, it's not, a, good, uh, not a good pitch for the, for the old distributors to hear. You know, I remember years ago interviewing Steve Gutenberg from Police Academy. And he, this is an, 
memorable story. He said one of the reasons why certain actors, once they reach a certain level, are a little bit difficult is because they spent so many years being rejected by casting agents and directors. And it's an, even when they get to a certain place, there's always going to be something around the corner, with, whether it's failure or rejection. Can you kind of uh, talk about that part of how hard it is to actually be an actor in any field, uh, more so just like Los Angeles and Hollywood? Well, you know, I have more of an empathetic uh, uh, view on it. I'm not, I'm not an actual actor, but I have been on the other side of the table for like the small little projects that we've done. And, you know, seeing like these, you know, say, you know, taking, uh, you know, a normal uh, day of auditioning, it's like a good eight, eight hours of, you know, you're sitting across the table and you see constant, you know, various actors, all types and shapes and sizes and everything, you know, coming in back and forth every five minutes. And, you know, if you have a soul in your body, you start to feel, you know, empathetic. You feel kind of, you feel for them in some way, especially the ones that really want it and the ones that are prepared. And uh, for me, I mean, that's, you know, I, I feel like it's, uh, it's yeah, it's a huge amount of rejection, and you want to make them feel better about it. I had to make a movie about it. I had to. Do, I had to, Jesse's calling me right now. Actually, I told him I had this interview, and he just doesn't. <laughs> well, you know, uh, as I could see from the film, Jesse is oblivious to all. <laughs> <laughs> he's a lovely man, but yes, he's a he's a likable. Uh, yeah, a, a little bit aloof. I'm sorry, Jesse. I love you. Um, <laughs> but no, but that's what we're, it, this wouldn't be a movie without him. First of all, you know. So what if I build uh, in? No, what I find really interesting is that all the actors they you didn't come up with names or anything. They're all themselves. Hmm. I felt like we take that Seinfeld approach type thing. I don't know what that means more than what, I, what, the, what you know what it sounds like. But I felt like we kind of keep it. It's like a constant reminder throughout the day and throughout the whole process that you're playing a version of yourself. Mm-hmm. You don't, you know, you don't need to know a character's name. You're, you are Jesse, but you're just this Jesse in this situation with these lines, et cetera, et cetera. You know, what do you think? Um, I feel like that added to the realism of it. Oh, I, I completely agree. That was one of that was one of the nice little hooks that nice. I really appreciate with what you did. Now, you know. Well, with your background, Marcus, I mean, mm-hmm. you worked with you worked on Snitch with my buddy Rick Waugh. Oh, really? Um, you know, oh, you, Rick Waugh. I I love Rick. We were talking about Bandito Brothers and Rick and Scotty Waugh last week. I've known them since they were like they came up to my knee. I watched them oh, grow, nice. grow up, do stunts. I knew their dad. So yeah. That's awesome. So you couldn't be have worked on a finer crew than working for Rick. But you've done music yeah. videos, you've directed short films, and mm-hmm. here you bring all of your grip camera lighting experience into play. So you write, you direct, you, you're doing editing, and you're also doing some of the camera work, some, some of the cinematography. Mm-hmm. How yep. does Marcus know whether he – how do you juggle the hats between director Marcus, writer Marcus, editor Marcus, mm-hmm. cinematographer mm-hmm. Marcus – which Marcus wins out in the end? <laughs> well, when a cinematogra- cinematographer Marcus, um, I don't even claim to be one, but I do my best. When we, you know, if you have to shoot something and nobody's around you to help you out, you got to do it. But <laughs> when that's the case, that's the most challenging. To be honest with you, I'm not very, uh, you know, you're not supposed to do all these things at one time, but we wouldn't have a movie if, we, if I didn't do that. You know, as far as shooting it and trying to direct and trying to, like, pay somebody, like, a couple of dollars for, to use, shoot their location and, all that at the same time is very frustrating. But when I'm not shooting, I say writer, director, producer guy. Uh, that's I love it. I love it. Like just just directing is the idea, and that's you know sounds like amazing to be able to have more time to just sit in front of the monitor and really tweak and like carve out something even better than it would be if I wasn't doing all these other things. But I love I love being director, producer, and you know kind of like problem solving every second of the day for twelve hours. I mean that's. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. It's exhausting. Well, on that, yeah. on that problem solving, what was the hardest part of shooting a micro budget film from your vantage point? Um, I would say prepping it. Uh, you know, we couldn't. I couldn't really prep it traditionally, where you prep the whole thing and then you go to shoot the whole thing. Uh, you know, because of locations and uh, cast availability, it becomes really tricky. You know, getting it, like kind of you know uh, securing everybody over the course of like you know a month or three weeks. So what I did was we, we uh, I would prep for a week and a half, uh, and then I would go shoot for three or four days, and that was kind of a block, you know. Yeah. And then I would go back to the house or whatever, you know, week and a half of prep, 
three or four more days, and we repeated that process about six times over uh, a month and a half, which ended up being about 16 or 17 shooting days. So that was the biggest challenge, just kind of juggling the schedule of it all. Mm-hmm. Now, are you when because of the fact you're also doing editing and directing? When when you are shooting, are you looking at it with a director's eye, thinking I can save coverage here, I I you know, I can cut down on time spent here, or do you just keep shooting and then worry nah, about it yeah. once you get in the editing? Well, you know, yeah, I mean, I think editing really helps out a ton. I mean, because you know what works and what doesn't. Most specifically, I think the angles and like you know. I'm talking to DP sometimes, and they're like, let's do this. And I'm like, what are you talking about? We just crossed the line. That's going to look terrible. You can't do that. I can't edit that. You know, but, that, yeah, I mean, you want to move on as soon as you get it. But, really, I try for a comedy, for like a movie like this, you, you know, it's pretty simple setup. And you really just want to, like, spend more time, you know, getting the, uh, the performance right and all that stuff. But, you know, we had to, we had to get it and go. That was, that was the, whole, the whole theme for this one, get it and go. We got it. Can't look at the monitor. You can't look at playback. We got it. Let's go to the next thing. Shut up. Go over there. Now, you have a very eclectic uh, array of and diversity of music in this film. Then Jeremy Tisser, Jeremy Tisser, okay, Mm -hmm. did the did the music. What were you looking for from a musical standpoint as an undertone uh, undercurrent to the film? I wanted specifically. I knew that I wanted. like swing jazz mixed with like cool jazz. So like Dave Brubeck meets like Frank Sinatra. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to do, and we, I thought we did a great job for the, for the, you know, the money we had. And also, you know, for even forget the money. Like I thought Jeremy killed it, but I'm, I get it. Maybe not, it might not be for everyone, but I, I feel like, you know, like when Jesse's driving down Mulholland drive mm-hmm. and he's got the wind in his hair, he doesn't have any hair, but you know, metaphorically. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, but that, then the music's playing, the jazz music's playing. We actually have a Marty and Elaine track from the Dresden room. We got them to give us a track. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, anyways, that is me in real life driving down Mulholland thinking up things for the story and, and other projects as well. I mean, that's what, that's what I love. So I just, I just went for it. Mm-hmm. Now, when you when you were prepping and when you were blocking things out, did you storyboard? Did you shot list? Did you shoot from the hip with this process? I used the storyboard and shot list, but I, it doesn't really help me, honestly. Like, I I think everybody's different, of course, but for me, uh, I you know it's all about obviously you know the location and you go from there. You know the situation and the amount of characters that are going to be in the, the scene, um, but. Yeah, I mean, shot lists and, and blocking. I like to leave a little bit of that breathing room mm-hmm. for on the day. I mean, you need to be prepared for sure. But, but yeah, I don't really, I don't really storyboard or shot list something like this. I mean, if it was more technical, obviously visual effects, all that good stuff, then yes, of course. But, but nah, I, I really don't. I just kind of fill it out. But also, you want to you want to let the actors take the lead on the blocking. A lot of times, I feel like to a degree, you know, this is your geography. This is the best background, et cetera. Now, how do you feel about it? Walk around, fill it out. Let's rehearse. Okay, cool. Let's put the camera here. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So now the premiere is today at 1 o'clock, correct? 2.45. 2.45 mm-hmm. at Dances with Films. How exciting is this for you to be having I am a, a premiere I'm for your film? I'm, we're, we're all very excited. I'm, I'm a little too excited. Uh, <laughs> um. Yeah, I just got out of the shower. I'm all ready to go. I'm going to head over there after I get off the radio here. Um, we're great. I mean, it's, you know, for, for a Monday afternoon screening, I feel like we're going to have a nice crowd, all things considered, you know. It's a great festival. I'm, we're just happy to be a part of it at all. So, yeah, we're, 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 we're very, very pumped. I have my investor over here, actually. He's, he's in town hanging out. He's looking at me right now. Um, he's going to head over there with me, and, you know, we're going to get pictures on the red carpet and all that stuff. So it'll be It'll be nice, you know, to, to have those memories and just go from there. Now, will any of the cast be there with you? Obviously, maybe Jesse. <laughs> yeah, Jesse took off work. He made sure to do that. Um, <laughs> Did you have to give him a checklist to make sure take off yeah, work? Yeah, do this, Jesse, please. I love you. Um, <clears throat> we got Holly, uh, the female lead. She's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Greg, big strong Greg, the man in chains. Right. If you remember Zerk. Uh, oh, I, yes, the one who showed up in a suit and tie. Yes, yeah, that's one of my favorite parts, actually. On the Why Venice Canal. So, yeah, but we have, we have, uh, we have most, most of the folks coming out, yeah. Now, how many, now, 
after screening today, is the film showing uh, again during uh, DWF? Uh, no, not during Dance of the Films, but we do have about, we have seven more screenings coming up throughout, uh, kind of across the, the, the country as of now, and we're waiting to hear back from about 80 more film festivals. So it should be getting, getting making its rounds here. So after Dances with Films, where's the film going from, from here? We have Temecula uh, Independent Film Festival, June 11th. It's nominated for Best Comedy, mm-hmm. which is cool. Uh, June 11th, I think it's 3 o'clock p.m. And then we have a screening at Connecticut, in Connecticut, uh, January 7th, or January, June 17th, uh, on a Wednesday at 7.30 at night. That's going to be a lot of fun. It's in, outside of Danbury. And yeah, those are the next two big ones. But the Connecticut one's really going to be a lot of fun, I think. We're going to go out and represent. Well, I, I just can't. I, I can't wait to see what you do next, Marcus. This is absolutely Aww, fabulous. Thank you so much. And that I'm, makes me very happy. And I'm so glad your investor's there because you can say, look, I haven't, we haven't <laughs> even shown the film yet, and we, we got to do an interview on the air on the radio. I know. It's so cool. It's so cool. Well, you enjoy that premiere. They only come around, you know, once in a blue moon. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to have fun today. That's what I'm going to do. And, you know, you're at the Chinese theater. Granted, you're upstairs in the smaller complex, but still. Mm -hmm. It's really cool. You're in Hollywood at the Chinese. So enjoy every minute, Marcus. Congrats. Thank you so much, guys. And I can't wait to see what you do next. I'll talk to you soon, hopefully. Oh, you better, Marcus. Have <laughs> fun. All right. Bye-bye. All right, thank you. Bye. Marcus Mazel. Cool. Actor for Hire. Actor for Hire web series. That's the Facebook account. Actor f- Facebook.com slash actor for hire web series. Because it started as a web series yes. and now it became a film. So yeah. let us take a short break and we'll be right back. Behind the Lens is sponsored in part by the Culver City Observer. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. When gardening is part of your life, it brings so much. Healthy eating, the freshest, most local produce, and playing in the dirt. At bonnieplants.com, you'll find all you need to succeed. When you grow bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants. And we are back. So that's pretty exciting. Marcus Mazel has his first premiere this afternoon. It's comedy hour. Two straight comedies. Two straight comedies. Well, and then, you know, a little bit about Barely Lethal. It has a few funny moments. That is a comedy. I, is, I would it, consider it, that I a comedy. I would com- consider it a comedy. Comedy slash what? Actioner? Teen comedy? Teen comedy slash... Teen comedy slash action slash Samuel Jackson can do no wrong. Yeah. I think that sums it up. Yeah, yeah. But, you know... A ve- I'm I'm very very happy today because last night were the Critics Choice Awards, mm. and we talked about this film last last week. I don't remember what was that. Ah, <laughs> the Incredible Nightingale, Nightingale of course, directed of course, by Kate, Elliot yeah. Lester, mm-hmm. one of the Bandito brothers, and the incredible performance from David Oyelowo, mm-hmm. and. As I said last week, his performance here in Nightingale is tour de force brilliance. Mm better than his performance in Selma. The show, it was, HBO bought the film. It debuted on HBO Friday night to rave, rave reviews. Okay. But the Critics' Choice Awards were last night, and I am so thrilled. David won a Best Dramatic Actor in a, in a, tele, in a film. Okay, cool. Television film. So that was really... I still have to check it out. You still... It's on HBO now. It's like playing. You can watch it. I'm just too busy watching Game of Thrones on it. On and Silicon Ga- Valley. Yeah, Game of Thrones, of course, with Sophie, Tur- Sophie Turner in it. Yes, yes, yes. So that's obviously why you saw Barely Lethal, because Sophie, the crossover <laughs> of Game I of Thrones. I love movies. Yes, maybe. That might be a reason. That you might know. be... Re- but Barely Lethal was really good, too, and uh, she's good in both. But, you know, there was a clip we didn't get to play last oh, week of my, ex- of my exclusive with Elliot talking about the casting of 
David in Nightingale. And it's a very mm. unique perspective of the two of them being British. And here's what he had to say. I never thought about his blackness at all. And David is, <laughs> David is British, you know, he's, very, he's, he's British. But, so I never thought about skin colour, you know. But I realised that, you know, quickly it's, it's a really big deal for black actors to get roles that you typically expect white actors to see. Um, and I didn't realise it, it came, it's become a little bit of a talking point in the film. So why are more black actors playing these parts? Yeah, and, you know, I played this now because it's uh, the press is already making a big deal over the fact that Taraji P. Henson won Best Actress in a Series for Empire as being the first black female to win. And I think Elliot has a great point. It's It doesn't matter. It, it's, if you can act, you can act. Yeah. If you're right for the role, you're right for the role. And uh, it's just, you give me a powerhouse performance and I'm happy. And it's kind of mo- mainly that Nightingale, it's just kind of... It- in his brain kind of thing, that whole no, POV paranoid kind of? Well, it's situation. playing out, but he's manufactured all this in his head. You know, right. he's suffering from severe PTSD, lives alone with his mother, and then things just, he just goes, descends into madness. Mm. And it's just, it truly is, on every level, performance as award-winning now, technical level, it, and the entire story is just, it's amazing. So I'm just really, I'm very, very happy for David. I'm very happy for Elliot with the film. Another interesting film, um, we're getting a lot of brother directors popping up. The Duplass boys aren't alone anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, We've got Josh and Ben Safdie, who have been around for a while. Uh, I don't know if you saw The Pleasure of Being Robbed. No. Daddy Long Legs. No. They have a very, very interesting cinema verite style with the films that they do. They have done a new film. Uh, it either ca- it either came out Friday or it's coming out this Friday called Heaven Knows What. Um, it's based on a book by a former heroin addict, um, Arielle Holmes. And she plays a character. It, she actually ended up being cast in the film, um, because as as Josh Safdie said, once he got to know her, there was nobody that could have played this character other than her. Uh, playing opposite her is Caleb Landry Jones that we have all seen just mesmerize us in lowdown, antiviral, contraband, last exorcism, Friday Night Lights. Yeah. He just gets so deep into character. He is emotionally chameleonic, physically chameleonic, and he becomes the character and in this case he becomes a fellow heroin addict named Ilya and in this volatile romance with Ariel Holmes character Harley and this is based on their their real life relationship is what Ariel based the book on this does not seem like a very happy film it's actually in many respects it's a very happy film okay as, but it's also, it's a very deep film. It's a very gritty film. Mm-hmm. And you, it's all about passion and romance. The romance with the drug, with heroin, and the romance between Ilya and Harley. And, you know, her what's stronger, her love for him? You know, each is, is equally addictive and dangerous. Mm. And it's very interesting to see it play out. And the Safties filmed this actually... In New York City, in the same area that Ariel and Ilya actually lived in on the streets. The people that are there, the majority of them are homeless drug addicts in the community. They allowed themselves to be filmed. It's a narrative film. Uh, But what the Safdies went through to get this made and to bring the authenticity to it is extremely fascinating especially when you meet both of them and they're as different as night and day was it kind of shot documentary style or more of like you said it's a narrative it's, film it's so it has narrative more... but it's very cinema verite right yeah. um and it's very very it's it is emotionally gritty it is visually gritty mm-hmm. um so i talked to them the other week about the making of this and one of the interesting facts of the film is that ariel this was her first film role 
since this, she has now gone on to star in three other films that will be coming out. But she was not over her addiction. She was on methadone the entire shoot of this film and then was so determined to turn her life around and clean it up, she went into rehab that the filmmakers paid for. They believed in her that much. Wow. Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of stuff, and a, that's part of the good stuff that comes out of this film and out, and out of the work is to see her turn her life around. And how back. were the lead performances? Caleb, Caleb is yeah. just... Uh, it, your eyes pop and yeah. your jaw drops and you don't blink. Yeah, he's kind of a one of a, he's a one of a kind talent, I think. He yeah. really is. Yeah. I mean, what we saw from him in Antiviral mm. was just mind-boggling and he does it here and just is so immersed in the character. And apparently from what the softies were saying, he actually went and lived with the real Ilya and lived on the streets with him to really learn his life. Oh wow. Yeah. But so when I talked to the boys, Part of what one of the big thing is the cinematography, the grit, the lighting, and especially since they shot in winter and the whole winter lighting idea. So this is what they had to say about filming. Heaven knows what. And we knew that the the movie would em- emit a vibe based on the look, and that was something that we built from. I mean, the first thing I ever said to Sean was, "This is needs to be an opera of long lens, seen mm-hmm. through so much glass." that you don't even know, you're just feeling it. You're not, Mm -hmm. if you're ever noticing something aesthetically, Mm -hmm. chances are it's obnoxious and it's not, it's not innate. Mm -hmm. So we wanted this movie to be of itself from, from the core. So that should bleed out. And And on, and on top of that, just like the, normally you'd approach this kind of group of people and okay, I need to be with them, nitty gritty documentary style, get in their handheld. And we kind of did the opposite. We made our lives much more difficult by using these lenses and being so far away from it, mm-hmm. but at the same time zooming in and getting so close, mm-hmm. creating that kind of dual perspective. And continuing on. Thank you. I think that's an interesting point because addicts who are recovering or, you know, remain, they, you know, obviously there's euphoric recall, which is just like your mind. You're not physically addicted to it anymore, but you're still remembering what it felt like to be have that rush. But one of the things I think that addicts really recall is this off-kilter feeling. Mm-hmm. Because it is, even like from a distance, like I know Arielle is experiencing that now as she enters kind of a balanced life is, you know, an ad- someone, I mean, I'm, I'm to some degrees, I'm an, I'm an addict. I mean, I'm not... I don't have a substance abuse problem, but I have addict personality. And uh, I know that I prefer an off-kilter lifestyle. I prefer Mm -hmm. an unbalanced lifestyle because I like drama. And I think that that is a really hard thing for, for, you know, recovering addicts to kind of get over is like how like normal life can kind of be boring, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not saying that it is. I'm just saying it in hindsight to a movie like this. You know, I think that this movie nails what the feeling is like. It, it, it's funny because like originally he, Josh was so close with these people, uh-huh. friends with them and getting to know everybody and then when he kind of pulled me in to be in this world it was very difficult because it's not how I like, you know, it's like, it's like, it's a very, it was a very difficult thing. It kind of shook my emotional core and, but then here I am and it's like, <laughs> Josh is like, all right, I'm going I'm to be over there with the cameras and now here I am like literally under the shirts <laughs> Loving everybody up and I'm in their brains essentially and it was like this weird kind of mixture of like we really depended yeah. on that collaboration and with that that is all the time we have today so you won't be here next week see you in two yeah. but Amber Benson Peter Baxter yeah. next week and yeah. I think Kit Bo- our friend Kit Bowen will be here okay. so for Behind the Lens until next time mm-hmm.